0: There are a hundred things I love about this church. The things that excite me about it is that with all of our walks of life that are so different from one another, we come from different faiths, we come from different backgrounds, we're different economically and we're different socially, but what binds us together is the blood of Christ. And so coming back with an opportunity to share this and know with all of those differences among us, the one place that is level is at the foot of the cross. And in Christ's eyes, we are all equal. And just to be able to hold those elements and share them in our hands, is really amazing there's a couple of other things that brings us similarities no matter where we are in life or what stage of life that we're in there are a couple of things or a couple of events that kind of make us all the same they're not always one of the things that we like to talk about the other one we get excited about the one that we don't like to talk a lot about is death but it is the one equalizer no matter how much you have or how old you are or how young you are, the uncertainty of the future in regards to that lands on all of us. And it's the one thing, unless Christ returns, that we will all face. The other thing that pulls us together is the return of Christ. And in six short verses in First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul addresses those two issues, death and the return of Jesus. Two profound theological issues in six short verses. This Sunday and next, we're going to unpack those together. So I want you to turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. This Sunday and next, I'm going to pull this together and go into chapter 5. I've got these two Sundays and then we leave for the youth conference. One of the largest things and I think one of the best things the CNMA does Life Conference. Connie and I leave on the 7th. There are some from our church that are on this team that are pulling it together, and then Bill's going to preach that Sunday, and Tuesday he rushes out with 60 kids from our church that are going to participate in that conference. Both gentlemen that were up for president of the Christian Missionary Alliance, both said they committed their lives to Christ and committed their lives to serving Jesus at a Life Conference. It is that great of an event. And most missionaries or pastors in the CNMA trace their roots of commitment to ministry back to a life conference. So when Bill's here that day and you're praying and he's going to be praying for the kids, keep that in mind as to the future leaders in the CNMA that God's going to call out of that event. We're going to wrap it up next Sunday morning in this context here. Today, the end of 4 to next Sunday morning, the beginning of 5. Brothers and sisters, that's us, right? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. The bond of Jesus ties us together. He's speaking to them but to us. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death or those who have died so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who seem to have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, in light of all of that, encourage one another with these words. Every young pastor starts out trying to be as creative as he possibly can be. I started my first church in Beaverdale, Pennsylvania after spending two years being a youth pastor in Newcastle and now in my first church. You want to try to encourage people, excite them, be creative. And so one particular Sunday morning, I'm talking about this particular section of scripture and the trumpet call of God. I wanted to set it up as best, as best as I could. It was a Sunday after a Sunday in July, as hot as you can imagine, with no air conditioning. So I made sure every single window in the church was open. And outside the church, I had a young man who played the trumpet. And when I got to that moment, the trumpet call of God is going to resound. He wailed on that trumpet as loud as anyone could have ever heard, never thinking that most of the people in that audience were very old. (laughs) And some almost went to be with Jesus right at that moment. You know you haven't captured your audience's attention when they're about to fall asleep in the middle of your sermon, and it's a trumpet That wakes them up. Hopefully I've improved, but only you know. Imagine in your mind you're a follower of Christ. You're not just a follower of Christ. You're one of his disciples. And so you've been with him everywhere he goes. Near what he knows is the end of his ministry, you're uncertain about that, he begins to talk a lot about the end of time. He also begins to talk a lot about his ministry ending here on earth. He talks a lot about his death. Almost watches the demeanor on the disciples' face and knowing that it's shaking them out. No one wants to talk about death and no one in that context wanted him to talk about death. Peter had actually rebuked him at one point for talking about it so often. At one moment in time, in John chapter 14, which Is probably for many of us the most familiar words we hear in regards to the future. He says, I don't want you to be upset. I don't want your heart to be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He said, I want to tell you something. In my father's house are a lot of rooms. We know the song in the King James is mansions. Literal translation is room. I'm going to be with Jesus. I don't care whether it's a room or a mansion. I'd prefer a mansion but I'm okay with the room. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. I'm leaving. going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you. I don't want you to be upset. I need you to know right now, in the midst of all of your turmoil, I'm leaving, but I'm going to prepare something that will blow your mind, and then I'll come back and get you, and I'll take you with me. One of the most brilliant professors I've ever been around Tied in that section of Scripture with one that's also familiar with us in Revelation 3.20. It's that one we use in evangelistic circles. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and lets me in, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. We use that verse in evangelistic context to try to get people to open their lives up to Christ. And it's a great story. If you've ever seen the picture of that event depicted, you notice that they have pictured it with no handle on the outside of the door, indicating that the person on the inside needs to open it. Revelation never describes that. An artist did. This guy tied those two together by saying this. In New Testament context, when there was a marriage celebration, the groom would go to his father's house and prepare a room for them to have their honeymoon in. When it was all prepared, the bride would slip off into that room And the groom would come back. And then he would go to that place and he would knock on the door and he would say, can I come in? And she would open it and they would celebrate the beginning of their journey forever in marriage. In my father's house there are a lot of rooms. I'm going to go and prepare one for you and then I'm going to come back and get you and we'll be there forever. That was one of the promises he made. Right before he died. And then he died. He rose again from the dead. During that journey of his death and his crucifixion and even the resurrection, the disciples scattered like sheep. Jesus, on a number of occasions, reconnected with them. John writes about one of them that I think is still one of my favorite. It's a reuniting of Jesus with Peter. Peter, you know, is the one who denied him three times. Went back to his old lifestyle of fishing. He recognized that it was Jesus, at least John did, as they were fishing that day. And Jesus, Peter jumps out of the boat and runs toward the shore and meets Jesus, and they had that interaction of reconfirming Peter's love for Christ. When Jesus asked him three times, do you love me, he continued to confirm that. You know I love you, you know I love you, you know I love you. He said, then this is what I want you to do. And he sends him out on a charge. He does say to him, I just want you to know that your life's not going to end the way you think it should or will. It's going to end pretty rough. Matter of fact, you're going to be bound and taken in places you don't want to go. (laughs) Peter, like Peter, looks at John and says, well, what about him? And Jesus said to him, what is it to you if I leave him here until I return? I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come back and get you. What is it to you if I leave him here until I return? What do you think is going to happen? He's coming back pretty soon. During the next 40 days of that interaction with Jesus, he spends a lot of time talking about theology and the future. Acts just simply tells us, he talks about things concerning the kingdom of God. i got to believe he went back to Matthew and some of those passages of Scripture that talked about his return and what that kingdom was going to look like when Jesus came back and turned everything right side up and put the world back together again and painted a portrait of an amazing future. Somewhere in the middle of that 40 days, All of a sudden, Acts describes, the author is Luke, uh, an unbelievable event. It was almost right in the middle of a sermon I have in my mind that Jesus just began to rise up right in front of them. And I got to believe they stood there stunned as Jesus rises up, eventually into the clouds and disappears out of their sight. While they're standing there looking at this event, in stunned amazement, two angels show up, which would have thrown me off for a little bit to begin with, and then ask the question, what are you looking at? Now, what would you have answered? What do you think I'm looking at? Jesus just (laughs) took off. And I don't know where he went. We just got him back. And now he leaves again. The angels give them this assurance. The same Jesus that went away is going to return. I'm leaving. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm going to come back. What is it to you if I leave him here until I return? The same Jesus that went away is going to come back in like manner. So, what do you think is going to happen? He's going to return. Every single thing that Jesus predicted, every single thing that he said, came true. Why wouldn't this? But then people begin to die. And these new believers in faith who came to faith in Christ, who are living their life the best they know how, in this brand new thing called Christianity, find their friends dying. They couldn't wait for that day, they couldn't wait for Jesus to return. They knew it was not going to be an ordinary day. The most amazing thing that pictures ever could have portrayed with Jesus returning and thunder and lightning and the clouds and angels and trumpets blaring is going to happen, but yet they're dying. They're going to miss it. And by the way, what happens next anyhow? Is death the end of it all, the end of humanity as we know it? And are they going to miss this unbelievable event Jesus predicted that yet hasn't come true? Those are the questions I'd ask, wouldn't you? What's oh, going to happen next? And, and now, here we are, 2,000 years later, waiting for that event, preaching on it for hundreds of years and thousands of sermons, but yet he hasn't returned. And friends of ours die way too young, and we don't know what to think. And we need somebody to put some pieces together so that I know how to live my life and I know how to look at the future and I know how to look at the inevitable called death. And so Paul in six short verses gives us some incredible theology. How many of you know the great theologian Charles Schultz? (laughs) You know who he is? Who is is he? The Peanuts guy. The guy that writes the Peanuts cartoons. He's passed away and now in the presence of God. But he's a great theologian. Lucy's looking out the window one day. It's raining like crazy. And she says, look at the rain. I wonder if the world's going to get flooded again. Linus says, no. In Genesis, God made a promise to Noah that it wasn't going to rain like that again. The world wouldn't be flooded again. And so it won't happen. Lucy looks at him and says, you've taken a huge load off my mind. To which Linus responds, sound theology has a tendency to do that. (laughs) It's exactly what Paul's doing. About the one thing that all of us will face until Jesus returns, and that is death and the coming of Christ. And he gives us in a few short verses some amazing theology. He talks about life, talks about death, talks about the coming of Christ, the difference between how believers look at death compared to non-believers, and then one single word of application in these verses. Look at the first one. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so they don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Paul may seem to be dealing with another subject, but he's really not. He's actually continuing a broader discussion regarding the fact that everything about how believers deal with life and death ought to be noticeably different. Everything about how we, as followers of Christ, act, love, and die should be different than those who don't know Christ. Everything about how believers deal with life and death ought to be noticeably different. Everything about how we, as followers of Christ, act, love, and die should be different than those who don't know Christ. How many of you saw this picture on the internet? Not me, yeah, that one. How many of you saw that picture on the internet? A lot of you. 65,000 likes a few weeks ago when it appeared. Last Sunday morning, on Father's Day morning, that couple, this is the next shot of them, maybe you'll see them clearer here. That couple was on the Today Show. You know who she is? She's from here. This church, that's Brianna Aikens. Her dad, Mike, teaches at BC3. That story went viral all over the internet, all over the country. People by the droves were calling and asking about the question. There's an interview that I'm going to show you in a second of, a, of the photographer who said, I've done hundreds of weddings and I've never seen a couple do that. I've never seen a couple pray before their wedding. I've never heard of a couple that made a decision to be pure before they got married which is what we talked about just a few weeks ago. Until I saw them. And everybody wanted to know what made them so different than every other couple. And this is one of their answers.
1: Sally Delta is live in our studio with their story, and they say being in the spotlight is really overwhelming to them. Yeah, Noreen, especially when attention is the last thing this couple wants. You see, they've built a relationship on serving the Lord and serving others and they want to make sure the meaning behind this picture doesn't get lost in translation.
0: I think I could have saw her, so right. we just kind of right. like saw hands and just like that.
1: And just like that, a viral sensation was born. Probably. Photographer Kim Burke got the shot. Yeah, we've probably shot over hundred weddings, but this moment right here is something that I've never witnessed. It's a moment so special it caught the attention of national TV networks and gained thousands of fans online. They're not seeing me, they're not seeing him, they're seeing what we're doing and that's Jesus Christ and that's just what's so cool to us. Hand in hand they prayed asking God to bless their marriage that their vows would last forever. In a society that kind of doesn't take marriage all too seriously this is a huge 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 deal and we need the Lord to make this work.
0: That picture I think really captures who we are as a couple in that uh... we really want to dedicate our lives together and our marriage to the Lord.
1: Bree and Josh Curtis live a life of service. They work with inner city kids at Urban Mountain Adventures. You know the Lord has blessed us so much with you know where we come from and and who we are and the parents that we had and we know that you know, not everybody has that blessing. In the midst of all the media hype, they want to make sure the popularity of this photo doesn't overshadow the meaning behind it. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is everything. That's, that's our lifeline. That's our connection to the Lord. We don't, we don't do anything without praying first.
0: I see that kind of commitment in dozens and dozens of weddings that I've done and performed. I've seen that event where couples wanted to pray together or be together or kind of hold hands before the event, before the wedding took place. To me, it wasn't out of the ordinary, but to them, it was extraordinary. Everything about how we Christians deal with life stands out to the world if we do it right, if we do it well. One of the reasons their faith stood out so remarkably was no one had ever heard of a couple deciding in that context of hearing the story to be pure before their wedding and then to want to pray together and to keep Jesus at the center of their relationship. Paul has been saying that all along. Followers of Jesus live different lives. Verse 12, right before this section of Scripture, look in your Bibles, right before this section of Scripture when he talks about death, I want you to understand that you live this way so that your daily life may win the respect of others. What did their life do? It won the respect of outsiders who had never heard of anything like that. He continues with that same thought here in this section on how we deal with the future and how we look at death. Brothers and sisters, followers of Christ, I want to make sure you understand a little bit about what happens when we die. Paul doesn't obviously address how we die or naturally when, but how we view death and how we view it differently from those who don't know Christ. One of the most enjoyable things I do in ministry is weddings. That bride coming down the aisle, the light on that groom's face when she walks into that door, a dad weeping all the way down, (laughs) everybody in the audience just exhilarated in the moment. One of the most difficult things I do, obviously, is funerals. And even more difficult in doing a funeral is when I deal with the uncertainty of where that person is with Christ. Because I know the word of God. And I know the end of what Jesus said in John 14 where I began a moment ago when he said, I'm the only way to heaven. And without me there is no other way. And when I don't know or I know for sure they haven't received Christ as Savior or I'm not sure where they're at with Christ, it's incredibly difficult to do from my vantage point. But I have pictures in my head of images that I'll never forget of those who I know also don't know Christ dealing with that death. And that empty, hollow shell of a look when they look and they don't know where to turn is so different than the funerals that I've been into of those who I know know Christ. Do we mourn? Paul said, we certainly do. Do we grieve? Absolutely. We just grieve differently. And when you look into that hollow face of an individual, I have it riveted in my mind of this gal whose husband died early, who I knew the context and I knew the the individual and I just wanted to pay my respects. And I saw her leaning over the casket and then she got up with the most empty, hollow look I've ever seen because she didn't know Christ and she knew he didn't. And she didn't know what to do. Do we grieve? Absolutely, Paul said. We just grieve differently because we know where they're at. And we know, as David said, one breath here, the next breath in glory. We know where Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's just different. Paul says, I want you to understand that we have hope in something, two things. One is that the next life holds, and the second, the return of Jesus Christ. He basically says, I just need you to know that life doesn't end with death. It is a journey into the next life when Jesus was trying to bring comfort to Mary and Martha when their brother died, he walks into that context and says to them this powerful phrase, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. Even though they die, they will live. That's why Paul could then say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's why he could declare in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God he gave us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Loved ones die. They die way too early. They die way too soon. They die way too tragically. But when they know Christ as Savior, and I know they know Christ as Savior, I look at that differently. I see it differently because I know where they're at. We use the phrase, I lost a friend, I lost a brother, I lost a sister, I lost a spouse. If they know Christ, they are not lost. You know exactly where they're at. That's the beauty of what Paul is saying. Everything that he says about what God promised and what Jesus promised is not just a pie in the sky and optimistic speculation, but a confident hope that what God said would come true would. That everything Jesus predicted was going to come true. And so that I know when I'm speaking about death and dying, I'm doing it for the sake of the living. Because I know in their context, they think it's the end of human existence. Paul says, I need you to know it's the beginning of another life, a better life, an unbelievable life. He actually says in Corinthians, one of my favorite phrases, no eye can see, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. Stories are written, books are sold about what people see on the other side, about what they think it's going to be like, about their experiences when they think they were there and they believe they were there, and maybe some of them were. And in whatever way, for whatever reason, it didn't happen that way, and they come back and they write a story or tell their story about it. Paul says, I just want you to know, they're just scratching the surface of what God has prepared for those of us who love him. They're just seeing a little glimpse of this amazing journey. Jesus has now spent the last 2,000 years in preparation of that room. Knowing this doesn't remove the pain of losing someone you love. It is incredibly painful. What it does is give us an unbelievable hope for the future. And that keeps us going and keeps us focused in the middle of the pain. It's that great Gaither song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, All Fear is Gone. Because I know he holds a future, and life is worth a living because he lives. A few weeks ago, I went to Dave Panther's funeral. I love that man. What fascinated me again is knowing in a couple of weeks when I would be in this section of Scripture is a celebration of his life, morning of his death, but it was different. In so many contexts and so many other funerals that I've been a part of because they knew where he was. And they know even early at 56, 57 years old, it was way too early to leave this world and way too difficult to have to gone through what he did. But they were absolutely certain of where he was. And when his wife stood on that platform and his son stood on that platform and shared their journey, I was stunned with their confidence in God. And I knew that exactly what Paul said here in this context is true. Because God said it's true. And they were living it out. Paul says, I don't want you to fear dying. If you know Christ is your Savior, you're going to be forever with the Lord. That phrase is more about a relationship than a place. We speculate about the place. We wonder what it's going to look like. I still love Keith Green, who most of you in the audience don't even know because he died so early and he's, I'm so old. But he talked about the future and talked about heaven, and he, before one of his songs said, can you imagine with all the spectacular wonders around this world, That God created in six days, and he spent 2,000 years preparing heaven. Can you even imagine what it's going to look like? Paul said, look, I don't want you to worry about dying. It's just walking into the next life. And you will be forever with the Lord. So encourage each other with those words. I have a confident hope that when I leave this world, I'm going to see Jesus face to face. He also gives us a second confident hope, and that is the return of Christ. So he says, wherever you're at in this journey of life, if you are dead in Christ, you know Jesus as your Savior and you're already gone, I just want you to know you're not going to miss this event. And for those of you who are still alive, you won't even believe this event and what it's going to look like. Paul uses a number of words in here when he tries to describe the event meeting in the air, the coming of Christ, the second coming of God, and all of those phrases. And then he gives us a little glimpse of what it's going to look like when he talks about the archangels and the trumpet call of God, the spectacular wonder that's going to unfold in front of us. And the dead in Christ are going to rise up out of the graves and they're going to meet those of us who are alive in the air and will so be forever with the Lord. The concepts are a little bit difficult for us to process. We have all kinds of speculation, But the word the second coming and the meeting in the air are familiar words to Paul. When he uses that word meeting, he has in mind what he knows he has seen as he's used that Greek word in other contexts of a visiting royalty coming to a community. And as they know that individual is coming, there is a number of people from this particular place, all dignitaries of some kind or the other, who go out and meet that royalty and then usher him in with a lot of pomp and circumstance into their city, into their environment. And that's the imagery that Paul has in mind when he writes that, meet him in the air. All kinds of pomp and circumstance. And he sees us as the dignitaries from that city, this life that we're living in, who get to go there. We don't precede those who have died. We meet together in the air. Those of us who know that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, we get to see him again in physical form of some kind. And we spend our lives for all eternity without time, without a watch. It's all thrown away. And, oh, I didn't want to do that. It's all thrown I tell you what, when I get to heaven, man, I can't wait. I'm 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 when I get to him in the air, I'm taking my watch with me, and then I'm dropping it at about a thousand feet. Because my life is consumed by time frames. And we're gonna be there forever, and we get to spend all eternity with him. Paul said, Don't worry about dying. Don't worry about missing this event. You know Christ is your Savior? <laughs> It'll blow you away telling you, though, you won't miss it. And I'm also saying to you as friends, you don't want to miss it. (laughs) You don't want to miss it because it will be amazing. Near the end of that section of Scripture that I started with in John chapter 14, one of his disciples said, Lord, where are you going, by the way? And how do we know how to get there? And Jesus said to him that classic phrase in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets there but through me. Repeat me, repeat with me. No one gets there but through him. No one. That leaves no one out. No one gets there but through him. And so my question to you as friends and people I love like crazy, do you know him? because you don't want to miss this. (laughs) You don't want to miss this either by dying or still being around when he comes back. You don't want to miss it. So do you know him? Do you know him as your Savior? Do you know for certain that if you died at this moment, you'd see Jesus face to face, because you know you know him. Not just know about him and know who he is or read about him in the Word of God, but you know you know him. You've opened your life up to him. You've given your life over to him. You've invited him into your life taking your hands off the wheel and you've given it over to Him. If you've done that, you then participated in communion this morning because that was the only requirement. If you've done that, you know beyond the shadow of a doubt, no matter what happens in this world based on time or death or the second coming of Christ, it's a win (laughs) all the way around. If you don't know Him, you ought to be scared to death. And I mean scared to death. Because I've been around long enough to know life is really unpredictable in regards to death. If you know him, you ought to be happier than anyone you can imagine because of what you know. And more importantly, who you know. Father, we thank you for your word. It is powerful. It's vivid. It's honest. I love that. So God, I, I lift up my family and friends here this morning in this audience who I love as well as Paul loved those he wrote to. And I trust that that excitement will stir in us because we know Jesus. And we know that no matter what happens in this life, we'll see him and each other face to face. And we'll be forever with you. I don't really care what it looks like. I'm curious. But to know that I'll be with you forever is enough. So I thank you for your promises. I thank you for your word. I thank you for paving the way and showing us how to get there. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, man, don't leave today without knowing for sure. It's a simple process of admitting you're a sinner. And If you're afraid to do that, ask the person beside you. They'll tell you you are. And recognizing you need a Savior, and I've already said He's the only one, inviting Him into your life and turning your life over to Him. We'd love to help you do that. That's why we're here. It's one of the reasons we exist as a church, to help you do that. So as everybody leads, you come this way, and we'll pray with you and pray over you. If you have a need, we'd love to pray for you as well. But if you're not sure about your relationship with Jesus, you need to be sure today. Next week in this section of Scripture, you'll understand why. God bless you. Have a great day. Pray for Bible school. Help us if you can. Invite some family and friends to have a great week with us. God bless you. We'll see you next week.